if you would, open your Bibles with me to Zephaniah chapter 2. Last week, we opened the book of Zephaniah, and my uh, safe bet would probably be some of us, for the first time, opened up the book of Zephaniah. And remember, he stands at a really important place in our Bibles. Uh, He serves as kind of a capstone for the minor prophets that have come before him. Uh, Everything from Zephaniah and before in that book of the Minor Prophets, that book of the Twelve, looks forward to God's judgment on his people in terms of removing them from the land. They are the pre-exilic prophets in a sense. They are writing before Babylon comes in and removes the southern kingdom of Judah. We have three more that we'll deal with after Zephaniah who write after that. But, But at this point, northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped out. And judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom, is imminent. It is inescapable. And last week, we looked through the first chapter, and we saw that God is going to describe this judgment, and he used three really uh, graphic pictures for that. He described the coming judgment as a flood, a flood that is going to come in uh, and devastate not only the whole earth, but will cleanse that stain of sin that is so deeply embedded. We saw him describe the judgment as a sacrifice, Uh, Not a people bringing a sacrifice to God, but God uh, almost shockingly making his people a sacrifice on the altar of his judgment, and the Babylonians being his honored guests invited to witness and partake of them in their judgment. And then we saw the final picture of a war, this devastating battle with the devastation and the loss of life that it brings. And as we move into chapters 2 and 3 today, we're going to see God move his people through the full cycle from ruin to restoration. You've been with us long enough, you've seen that the theme of judgment is never the final word in the Minor Prophets. It's serious. It is absolutely critical. It is a part of the faithfulness of God. But in His mercy, God speaks to the restoration that is coming. And today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to watch as He moves people, sinful, fallen, failed people, from guilt to glory, from the ruin and devastation of sin onto the glory of redemption and restoration. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zephaniah chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first three verses that we went over last week, but to help us kind of make that hinge to where we're going. Zephaniah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, God says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, even as we read these words, we recognize that they're written to a people who anticipate judgment. Uh, there's a call to respond before it's too late, before the day runs out, while they still have time, uh, there's a plea to be restored to the God that they've rebelled against. And Lord, we recognize that that same call goes out today. The author of Hebrews says that while it is still today, let us respond. Let us not harden our hearts like Israel did so many times. Lord, you've graciously given us today. And so I pray that if there are those that are sitting here or listening online or through whatever means you've allowed this to go out, I pray that we would wrestle deeply and wrestle truthfully with where we are in relation to you. Whether we are truly and rightly called your people or whether we are still rebels engaged in a war against you. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, our sin-blinded eyes, to behold wonderful things from your word. 
God, I pray that you would tear through the darkness of sin and shine the light that only the Holy Spirit can. God, I pray that we would not only see and understand, but that we would respond. Help us to be a people who are humble, who anticipate the coming of the King and serve him willingly every day until he does. Lord, you're good, you're gracious, and you're faithful to do all that you promise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I heard Nad this week on the radio that I hadn't heard before. The message itself isn't new, uh, but the details of this one were. Uh, as many ads are for, this one was for weight loss, promising total body transformation um, without surgery, uh, without dieting, and without working out, I think were the three big claims. Um, I have no idea how they were going to do it. My guess is some magical new essential oil that I haven't heard of, um, but it, it was basically the promise of total transformation without any effort to put into it. And that that pitch sells in any number of contexts, doesn't it? Uh, money without work always sells. Health without sweat always sells. <laughs> Quitting without cravings. Change without really trying. Uh, we are a people who are largely dissatisfied with where we're at on any number of fronts, uh, but we don't typically become dissatisfied enough to actually do anything about it. And if that's true on the physical front, uh, and maybe even dangerous on the physical front, how much more dangerous and even deadly is it than things that matter for eternity? We're pretty well acquainted with the state of our finances. We're pretty well acquainted with the state of our portfolios, but how well acquainted are we with the state of our souls? As we come to Zephaniah 2 and 3, we're going to come face to face with two kinds of people. We are going to see the marks of those who stand in rebellion against God. A people who, if you would have asked them, would say that they were fine. That they, as God's people, had no anticipation of his judgment or his justice. And then we're going to see a people who bear the marks of actual restoration. And I think the challenge in all of these things is they're so directed toward a particular people at a particular moment in history that we forget that those same questions apply to us. The details and the specifics of the prophecies uh, are driven and directed toward Israel, but the larger question of where we stand in relation to a holy and just God who will deal with sin still echoes today. So let's open up chapter 2, and we're going to begin by looking at the marks of a people who live in rebellion. And as we come to verse 4, again, we went through 1 through 3 last week, that call to respond. While it is still today, before the judgment comes, uh, to seek the Lord, the ones who are humble, the ones who seek righteousness and humility. Uh, as we come to verse 4, we see the Lord's promised judgment. And we're going to see his judgment, first of all, looking at the Gentile nation. We're going to see God's judgment promised toward the Gentiles. And here's what I want you to do. As we go through this first section of chapter 2, I want to see if this resonates with you, something that we've already read in a different minor prophet. So this is kind of like a little pop quiz that I won't grade, but I'll know because I'll see it in your faces whether you're picking up what's happening here or not. There's something very, very familiar about what Zephaniah does. See if you can pick it up. Don't worry, I'll give you the answer as we go to the end of it. But look at what he does in verse 4. He says, For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Uh, those are four out of the five chief cities of the Philistines. Uh, and in case you were wondering whether the Bible was relevant, those names of those cities are all over the news the last couple of days. Something that will tie in at the end of the sermon here. Uh, 
but these are the people that lived in and really controlled the seacoast area to the west of Jerusalem. These are the people that are wicked. They're idolatrous. They're the ones that God uprooted and that he told Israel to drive completely out of the land. And he pronounces a very particular judgment against them. He says, You, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. Their cities, those major primary population centers of those ancient enemies of God's people, are going to be places of desolation. In verse 7, the seacoast will become a possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Those people who had been bitter enemies of God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years are going to be judged. They are going to be overthrown. They're going to be uprooted. They're going to be cast out. And in their place, if you notice, God says that he is going to plant his people. The remnant of his people are going to possess their place. Now, if you are a person who lives in Judah, if you are someone who lives in Jerusalem at this time, and you're hearing Zephaniah's promise, Zephaniah's prophecy, that sounds like pretty good news, doesn't it? Good news on two fronts. First of all, your enemy gets dealt with and judged. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, those are your enemies, and hearing that they're going to come to ruin sounds very, very good. And not only hearing that they're going to come to ruin, but that you get to possess their stuff. It's almost reminiscent of what God said to the people as they came out of the exodus in Egypt, that they would possess the land of their enemies, uh, but God's not done yet. He moves on. And in verse 8, he says, I've heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. He moves to two additional people, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Both of these people live in the eastern part. They were to the east of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever because of their arrogance, because of their boastfulness, because of their hatred of God's people. Again, these are people who had been bitter rivals against God's people from the time Israel was born as a nation. From that travel from Egypt into the promised land, there's enmity between these people. And God says he sees the taunts, he hears their arrogant boasting, and he's going to make Moab and Ammon like Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a really subtle tie-in to not only the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the history of those two people. If you were to turn back to Genesis 19, and I would encourage you to do that this week, you would see that familiar story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, and how those messengers sent from God go to Abraham. And Abraham asks him to spare the city if there were righteous people. There are none. They go to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is there, and he's told to flee with his family. Lot flees. Lot's wife looks back. We remember the story. And after Sodom and Gomorrah are completely decimated and destroyed, Lot lives in a cave with his daughters And his daughters say, because of the state that we're in, we will never have children. Our family line will die. And so they come up with this perverse plot to become impregnated by their father. And the offspring of that incestuous relationship is Moab and the Ammonites. So the history of those people and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are historically tied together, and Zephaniah calls that back in a really subtle, really poetic way. It's really 
fascinating writing in the way that God puts it. But once again, look at the promise there in the last half of verse 9. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nations shall possess them. Two things that we have to see there. First of all, that God is going to preserve a remnant of his people. Remember, destruction is coming on Jerusalem, but God's judgment for his people is never toward their complete destruction. He promises to preserve a remnant, and not only is he going to preserve a remnant, but the survivors, the people of that remnant, are going to possess the nation's that came against them. And then in verse 12, the focus once again shifts. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. A very, very brief word toward the people of Cush, and you say, that doesn't mean anything to me. Just understand that Cush was the people to the south. Near the Nile River, it probably includes the idea of Egypt down south, those people who had not only enslaved God's people, but Egypt who continually was a threat to Israel throughout the generations. God says that his sword is going to come against them, that he is going to deal with those people in the south who had been the enemies of God's people. And then one final judgment turns to Assyria. Look at what he says in verse 13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste in the desert. That great city of Nineveh, that that place, that source of power and pride is going to be made waste like a desert. Herds will lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the windows. Devastation will be on the threshold for her cedar work will be laid bare. That city of tens of thousands of people, that ancient center of power and commerce and pride is going to be a place where only animals live. Owls and hedgehogs. By the way, translating the names of ancient animals gets really tricky. So owls and hedgehogs, about as close as we can get to there. The point is that that once great city is going to be brought now down to nothing. And at the heart of that is this reason in verse 15. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What was the root of Nineveh and Assyria's issue? It was their pride. A city that says, I am and there is no one else. Does your theologically informed mind pick up anything in there for the people to say, I am, when what does God say that he is called? I am. These finite, fallen, temporary creatures tell the Creator that they are all that there is and all that there ever will be. And the I am is going to show them exactly how small they are. Now, you've heard of those judgments on the four nations. Here's the quiz. Did that sound familiar to you? Did that call to mind anything that we've been through before? This map should look very, very familiar to you. And when we went through the prophet Amos, maybe you'll remember that Amos used a very fascinating technique where God pronounced judgment on six different peoples all around Israel to highlight the fact that while the nations were wicked, they were worse. Well, look at what God just did again through the prophet Zephaniah a couple of generations later. First of all, he pronounced judgment against those cities to the west in the Philistine states that you see there, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. He pronounced judgment on the kingdom of Moab and the kingdom of Ammon there to the east. He promised judgment to Cush, which is down in the south. He promised judgment to Assyria, which is there in the north. And do you see what God did once again? 
He surrounded his people with the judgment of the nations. Now, if you are Judah, if you are Jerusalem, and you have heard these things, how are you feeling? Probably pretty good. These are people that you don't like. These are people that have hated you from generation to generation. They have been a constant thorn in your side, a constant source of pressure and pain and heartache and war and strife. And God has said he is going to deal with all of them. So in some sense, Israel would look at this and say, yes, they deserve it. Let the judgment come on these people who are every bit as wicked as we would think they are. But God's not finished. Remember that as you read through your Bibles, as the prophet writes this, there is no chapter break. Those chapter breaks and the verse divisions there are very helpful, especially as we think to find specific things, as we memorize things. They're very helpful, but they are not in the original copies. If you were to continue reading from chapter 2 to chapter 3 without break, it moves from the judgment on the nations immediately to judgment on Jerusalem. Because the reality is that while the nations are wicked, God's own people are worse Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. Jerusalem sometimes known as the holy city. It was this place that was supposed to be sanctified, set apart, called out and made different by God. It was the place where his people would come to worship. It was the place where his temple was supposed to be. It was the place where he would dwell in the midst of his people. But it's no longer a holy city. Now it's an oppressing city. It's a rebellious city. It's a wicked city. As bad as the nations are, once again, as prideful and as arrogant and as boastful as the nations are, Jerusalem is worse. Look at what they do. First of all, in verse 2, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. He sets up these parallels that talk about how far and how failed these people are. First of all, they listen to no voice. Imagine the voices that God had given to his people. How had God spoken to his people? He had given them his law. He had spoken his law to his people. They knew exactly what God expected. They knew exactly what God was like. They knew exactly what God had promised, but they refused to listen to the law. What other voices did God send to his people? Every generation had its prophets. God speaking through men to warn the people about what was coming, to call them back to worship and obedience, but the people don't want any of that. They want prophets who will tickle their ears, who will give them nice messages and tell them how well they're doing and what God is going to do for them. And because the people will not listen, they accept no correction. If they don't listen to the voices that are correcting them, that are guiding them, that are calling them back to obedience, they will accept no correction. Their hearts are hardened against the discipline. See, the law would have corrected them, but they had actually physically lost the law by this point. Josiah has to find it 18 years into his reign. They refuse to accept the correction that the prophets bring on them. God, in his grace, had already begun to discipline them. Remember way back to Joel when we went through that at the very beginning of the minor prophets and he saw that plague of locusts that came in and he said, wake up. This is not just bugs that are bothering you. This is a a reminder that God is not pleased with who we are as a people. 
And because they accept no correction, it shows that they have no trust in the Lord. What did Israel trust in? What did Jerusalem and Judah trust in? It seemed like everything but the Lord. They trusted in their own walls. If the army's coming, build a bigger wall. They trusted in their own armies. If an army's coming, we need to recruit more soldiers. And if that didn't work, they trusted the nations. Get a bigger, a better, stronger ally. And if that didn't work, we'll worship the idols of all the nations. Maybe they'll help us. Maybe they'll protect us. It seems like Israel throughout their history, Judah throughout their history, looked for strength and security and stability in everything but God. They did not put their trust in the one thing that could actually save them. And the outworking of all of that is she does not draw near to her God. The God who said, you are mine, you will be my people, my treasured possession, they refused to draw near to. Through their disobedience, their rebellion, their arrogance, their pride, their self-satisfaction, they kept him at arm's length. To draw near to God, in one sense, would have cost them everything. It would have required humility. It would have required repentance. It would have required that they put to death their trust in everything else and surrendered wholly and completely to God, but that would have been the one thing that would have actually preserved them through this. But the people refuse. And it's so corrupt. You can see kind of this top-down condemnation that he brings. Verse 3, he says, Her officials within her are roaring lions. This, the officials, the, the civic leaders, the ones who are supposed to be uh, the shepherds and the servants of the people, they're like roaring lions. They're dangerous beasts in the midst of a vulnerable people. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. The judges, the ones that were supposed to maintain and uphold justice, among God's people, they're like ravenous wolves who seek to destroy and who eat so thoroughly that they leave nothing behind them. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Those voices who are supposed to speak on behalf of God, who are supposed to say to the people what God had told them to say, who are supposed to be faithful, who are supposed to be not only helpful, but who are supposed to be truthful above all else, they were fickle. They were treacherous men. They're dangerous. They're deceptive. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The priests, the one who are supposed to lead the people by example and by practice and worship and holiness and sacrifice, they profane what is holy. What is holy is what's set apart, what is set aside, what is distinct. And what's profane is what's common. See, the priests were so far fallen that they took what was holy and they treated it like trash. And so the people have no concept of how to follow after God. And the Lord knows. That's what verse 5 reminds them. The Lord within her is righteous. That is a terrifying sentence if you're living in rebellion. The idea that the Lord is an eyewitness to the sins and the failures and the rebellion of his people, and the Lord does know injustice. See, the justice of God is only good news if you're just. The perfect faithfulness of God is only good news if you stand in right relationship to Him. Otherwise, the perfect faithfulness of God calls for the perfect dealing of justice to the wicked. And every morning He shows forth that justice. Each dawn He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. 
God sees their corruption, and he's going to do something about it. His perfection demands that he do something about it. And that means that God deals with the sins of the unrighteous and the unjust. And as you pull back from these specifics, again, you begin to see the tragedy of what he's saying here. The nations surrounding Jerusalem, the nations surrounding the nation of Judah there were bad. They were wicked, they were vile, they were idolatrous, they were arrogant, uh, they were utterly fallen, and they deserved the justice. There was no excuse. But how much more so God's people? The nations were wicked, but they had no law. God's people were wicked, and they willingly set aside the law that he had given them. The nations were wicked, but by and large, they had no prophetic voice. We know uh, some that wrote to the nations, but by and large, they had no prophetic voice. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, had a constant stream of prophets calling them back, and they refused to listen. The nations, by and large, had a no, no natural national history of God's dealing with them. Israel had stories from every generation of how God had sustained and protected and provided for them, and they were willing to ignore all of that to pursue their own way. And you put it all together, and at the heart of all of these things, you see the the marks of an unjust people. You see the marks of a rebellious people. You see it in their violence. You see it in their injustice. You see it in their greed. You see it in their idolatry. But to boil it all down, at the heart of the failure, not only of the nations, but of Israel, is this pride. The pride that says, I will not listen, I will not respond. I will see to this on my own strength and in my own way. But by now we know that judgment's not the end of the story. That God is perfectly faithful. That he is faithful to discipline his people. But that God in his faithfulness is also going to mercifully redeem them. We even saw it built into the promises of judgment against the nation. How God talks about a remnant that is going to possess the land. And we're going to see, as we move through chapter 3, the rest of chapter 3, the marks of a restored people. We've seen the marks of a rebellious people, largely centered on pride, and now we're going to see the marks of a restored people. And there are going to be some familiar themes, but Zephaniah brings up some of the most unique, some of the some of the most clear understandings of how God restores a people that we've seen up to this point in the Minor Prophets. And the first thing that we're going to see is that the mark of a restored people is unity. Where there was division, now there is unity. Look what he says in verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now we have to stop there for a moment because we have to understand what time is he talking about. Remember, no chapter divisions, no verse divisions. This is reading as one clear narrative. So I want to bump back up to verse 8 to help us understand what time he's talking about. God says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Judgment on the nations, focused then, a judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And now in verse 8, God widens the scope again and says that he is going to pour out his indignation, his anger, the fire of his jealousy over the whole earth. So in the immediate context, he broadens the scope and he begins to talk about the nations of the earth falling under his judgment. 
And then verse 9 says, for at that time, at what time is he talking about? He's talking about at that time when he assembles the kingdoms, at that time when he pours out his anger and judgment. And at that time, when that universal judgment time is here, he says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What peoples? I think that our immediate response would be to say, well, it's probably talking about Jerusalem, Judah, Israel. He's talking about his people. And once again, the immediate context implies that he's talking about those same nations that he gathered for judgment. And what we have here for the first time in the Minor Prophets is not only the promise of judgment on the nations, but the implication that God is going to redeem people out of those nations in the day of his wrath. And God says he's going to give the peoples a pure speech. Why does God talk about the speech of the gathered nations? There's a few different kind of understandings and interpretations, but I think the best way to understand this is Zephaniah has already used words that allude to a major judgment in Genesis when he talked about the destruction of the earth by the flood. There was another broad, wide-ranging judgment in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the people of the earth are gathered together, and they come together and they decide to build a city and a tower whose top will reach all the way to the heavens. And the people of the earth gather together and they say, as long as we remain together, there's nothing that we can't do. And that's a big deal, because not only does it display the pride and the arrogance of the human heart and the desire to exalt self above all things, but it's in direct violation of God command, God's command to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it as his uh, kind of vice regents on earth. And so what does God do? He confuses their languages and he scatters the people. And what do we see in the day of the Lord when God begins to work this universal judgment? This is the promise to begin to undo that scattering and that division. That he is going to gather for himself a people of a pure speech so that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. The people of the earth that were divided, that were fractured, that were scattered are going to be called together and called one people. Not only a common language, but a common purpose. See, way back in Genesis 11, the people gathered together to sin and so God dispersed them. In the end, when God wraps up all things, he's going to gather them together for obedience and worship. Verse 10 says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. The people are going to come together to worship God and to bring him offerings that he calls them to. The nations that were idolatrous and scattered are going to be worshipers at this coming time. And they are going to bring the right offerings to God. And again, it's the first kind of glimpse at the idea that there's a coming time when God will demand the worship of the nations in very, very similar terms to what he demanded of Israel. And Ezekiel and Zechariah in particular clarify what that looks like. The people that were fractured will be united, and that leads to the next kind of mark of a restored people, not only unity, but in this time of restoration, what was polluted is going to be purified. Where there was pollution, there's going to be purity. Verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you will no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. The focus now narrows to a particular rebellion of God's people in his holy mountain. He's kind of moved back geographically to Zion, to Jerusalem. And he says that in this great day of the Lord, God is going to remove from them their proudly exultant ones, their haughty ones. That pride that was so central to their rebellion is going to be broken and done away with. All that shame that came from pride and arrogance is going to be removed. And in their midst, God says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And they will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. What did Zechariah call them to do in chapter 2? The beginning of chapter 2. Seek the Lord, and perhaps you'll find refuge in the day of trouble. God says there's a time coming when I deal with the nations. There's a time coming when I deal with my people. And when I break that pride, I will leave in its place a humble and lowly people. And a humble people are a people who seek the Lord. A humble people are a people who seek refuge in the Lord. Israel, Judah, sought refuge in everything but the Lord. Refuge in cities, refuge in armies, refuge in nations, refuge in any number of worships of idols. There's going to be a time coming when they find refuge in the one place where they were able to find it all along. And when they do... Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they will graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Where did Jesus say that polluted speech began? It's in the heart. Sin is a heart problem. Sin is not a genetic problem. Sin is not a chemical problem. Sin is not a circumstance problem. Sin is a heart problem, and it always has been. And out of the wickedness of their hearts, Judah and Jerusalem were characterized by lies, by greed, by injustice, by a perversion of the law. But in this time, when God purifies his people, their radically changed hearts are going to produce radically changed behavior. And they'll lie down and graze, and none will make them afraid. Why? Because their sin and their disobedience brought judgment. It brought constant fear. If you go all the way back to Leviticus, God said, I'm going to put terror among you. He said, you'll be afraid of a leaf that blows. But there's going to be a time coming when God purifies their hearts and brings them to the place of obedience, and their purified hearts and their obedience will lead them to a security, and no one will make them afraid anymore. And the picture is of this flock that was disciplined and scattered, now gathered together and brought to lie down in peace and safety. And the final mark of a redeemed and restored people is joy. Where there was mourning, now there's rejoicing. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. There had not been much to rejoice about in Jerusalem. But there's a day coming when their mourning will be turned to joy. What is it that makes them sing? What's the reason that they have to exult, to shout with great joy? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. 
You want to know the first cause for joy in a redeemed people is that the judgment has been taken away. The discipline, the right justice and judgment, the right guilty verdict for their sin has now been removed and wiped out. And so they sing because they're innocent. Not only has He taken away the judgment against you, He's cleared away your enemies. Those people who hated them, those people who oppressed them, their foes from inside and from the nations have been dealt with and decimated by God's judgment. And those that are left will humbly join in worship of the Lord, and so their enemies have been dealt with. Why else do they sing, The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. They sing because God is with them. You understand that was the greatest gift that God promised to Israel. Because sin kills and sin separates, and it has from the time of the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, dying they would die, but immediately they were removed from the presence of God. At Sinai, God said, you, Israel, are going to be my treasured possession from among all the earth, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. Somehow, a holy God was going to live among fallen and broken people once again. And in the tabernacle and in the temple, he did that, but there were always barriers to that. But he says the time is coming when the Lord will rule in their midst, a mighty one who will save you. And so they don't have to be afraid. And on that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And again, I know there's a lot of ways that people read the minor prophets, but the plain reading of the text here talks about a specific people and a specific city and this anticipating promise that God will rule from his chosen city once again. And that God who rules in the midst of His people says that He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In one of the most remarkable statements in the Minor Prophets, we're told that God rejoices over His redeemed people. I think it makes sense for us to see the people sing a a song in response to God. After all that God has done, for God's people to sing to Him makes sense. It seems like the only right and reasonable response to respond to God with joy and thanksgiving. But what we see here is that God, the God who did all the work, the God who called them, the God who made them a nation, the God who purified them, the God who cleansed them, the God who actually changes their hearts now rejoices over what He has done in His people. Not because they figured it out on their own, but because His mighty power has saved them and purified them. And the closing verses of Zephaniah are this chorus of what God will do for His redeemed people. That God who is in their midst, that God who exults over them with loud singing, says, I will gather you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. 
At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Do you get the point of those last few verses? Who is going to do this? God will. It is not because Israel finally figures it out. It is because God moves in a mighty way on behalf of his people. He will gather the people who mourn for the festival. And again, just this tantalizing hint that God brings his people back to a right worship. And that that doesn't remove the idea of feasts and festivals and sacrifices. And again, Zechariah talks about that and Ezekiel talks about that. And it's just hinted at here in Zephaniah. He will deal with their oppressors. He will save the lame. He will gather the outcast. He will change their shame into praise. And you come to the end of this and all these remarkable promises, and we have to ask the natural question, has this happened yet? Have we seen this? Has this somehow been fulfilled in a way that we are not expecting or not anticipating? Because it sure seems like God makes some very specific promises, not only to a particular people, but to a particular place. And we know that not long after Zephaniah writes this, the people are going to be carried away in judgment. And do they return to the land? They do. A remnant return. They rebuild the wall. They rebuild the temple. But they don't rule themselves. There is no king in their midst. And then in 70 AD, after an uprising, Jerusalem is leveled by the Romans. The temple torn down brick by brick. And the people again are scattered to the nations. And slowly, over hundreds of years, they begin to regather in the land. In 1948, Israel becomes a state. But there's no heart change. There's no radical outpouring of humility and worship. There's no seeking the Lord and the Son. And so there's no peace. Saturday morning, thousands of rockets fired from Gaza killed hundreds of people. And Prime Minister Netanyahu said Israel is at war. You know what that's a reminder of? Not another notch in your end times countdown. It's another reminder that Israel is not yet restored. That there's been no radical heart change. And so there is no radical restoration. It's another reminder that God is faithful to discipline his people. And that day of the Lord, previewed in 722 as Israel is carried away, previewed in 586 as Judah is carried away, previewed in 70 AD as the temple is torn down. A reminder to us for every earthquake, every famine, every disease, that this world remains broken and longs for the return of the king who will restore the world that he has made. And the reminder that God is always faithful. And that's what I want us to leave this picture with. I want us to close Zephaniah with the image of the God who redeems kind of seared into our minds. Because that promise of redemption is not only for Israel. God has made specific promises to his people. I firmly believe that. But you and I have this unique privilege of seeing the God who redeems and how He's worked that redemption out through history, in particular on the cross. The God who redeems showed us how He would redeem His people from their greatest enemies. 
Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, our great enemies, sin and death, were finally dealt with. Through his death, through his burial and his resurrection, death and sin are done away with. And Satan, our great adversary, although he is a fearsome foe, he's a defeated foe. He tempts, he accuses, but we have an advocate before the Father who ever lives to plead our case. And not to plead our goodness, but to plead his shed blood that covered and cleansed us. That same God promises to gather Israel, and he's the same God who promised to gather a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So how do we live in light of these things? First of all, I think we need to consider what a humble response looks like. As you stand here, sit here, listen to this, at some point, evaluate whether or not we have ever responded to this God in humility. Ask, are we like the humble, or are we more like Israel who refused to hear, who refused to accept correction, who refused to trust the Lord, and who refused to draw near to God? Second thing, changed hearts still produce changed people. And of course, we have to be careful here. We know that God doesn't save good people, that we don't work hard so that God would love us. Ephesians and the rest of the Bible is incredibly clear about that. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We are saved by grace through faith, and that's not of ourselves so that no one can boast. But Paul immediately goes on to say that we were his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. A changed people live changed lives, not perfect lives, but changed lives. Because of the work of God in our hearts, we're able to live as living sacrifices for God. And finally, what is there to sing about? I'll be honest, the hardest part of this passage for me to get my mind around is the idea that God rejoices over his people. Sometimes I don't find, or I find it difficult to find a reason to sing. And sometimes that's because I'm focused so firmly on my own sin and the frustration, the anger, the bitterness, the disappointment that it brings. How could God rejoice in my failure? Well, the reality is God doesn't rejoice in my failure. He rejoices in the power of his sovereign goodness that redeems ruined sinners. Christian, what do you and I have to sing about? Which, by the way, is valuable, and we're going to close in a song. But what do we have to sing about? Well, our guilt has been removed, hasn't it? If that brought Israel to rejoicing, if that will bring Israel to rejoicing, how much more should it bring us to rejoicing now, knowing that God has removed our guilt? Israel's enemies will be dealt with, and that will bring them to rejoicing. Our enemy has been dealt with. Israel could rejoice because God promised to be with them. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. His Spirit dwells in us. We have every reason to sing. Let's pray. Lord, make us a rejoicing people. Not because 
there's no judgment, not because there's no justice, not because life is easy. Lord, make us a rejoicing people because you are good and you have redeemed a people for yourself. Lord, we're reminded that these promises await and anticipate your perfect faithfulness. And so, Lord, every day that we wait for your return, remind us that you are good, that you're faithful, and that you never forget, that you're not slow as some count slowness, but that you're patient. Lord, we anticipate rejoicing in the fullness of our salvation when we stand before you face to face. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.